it's all about connections and communication and you just wind up working for and with people that you know and trust. We care about what we do and who we work for and the product that we put out. And I think that's how it needs to be and that's how you stay in this business this long. Welcome to the Land Department Podcast. The state of land and energy as we see it. Brent, it's a, it's a pleasure to have a new guest on the show. Typically, we get to do roundtables, stuff like that, but to have someone so experienced, it's, it's a pleasure. How did you meet William Fricker? The man, Mr. Fricker. <laughs> God, uh, long, long time ago, William actually was friends with Tom Dudley uh, for years. And uh, I think way back in the day, did some work for Dudley when he was in the field and before he got smart and got an in-house gig. And... Uh, <laughs> And as it worked out, East Texas, I think it was Fricker, uh, yeah. some Hainesville stuff, uh, you were Tyler. And um, all of a sudden, William was my client in-house, and we, we ran a big old leasing job, probably two or three of them, and uh, put together some nasty East Texas <laughs> East Texas prospects together. So it was fun. We kind of became buddies on the mean streets, you know? Yeah, we did. Glad, glad to have you, William. Thank you. Excited about the conversation today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, for our listeners who don't know you, just give us a little bit about your background, where you're at now, what you what you like to work on. Um, currently, I work for uh, David Arrington here in Midland, a, uh, a small independent, and we're our main project is uh, we're drilling wells underneath the city of Midland. We've got about 140 wells to drill under the city of Midland. I think we've drilled about 50. Um, so it's all rooftop leasing. You know, we've got. 10,000 leases or something like that. Um, it's a pretty high maintenance project. A lot of what I do, um, we've got another project in uh, Fisher County. We've got about 40,000 acres. And uh, so we've been working on that uh, since I've been here almost uh, almost two years. So, But I started uh, back in 96 uh, here in Midland. I was independent for seven years. And like Brent said, I did you know pretty much would work uh, uh, anything I could get my hands on um, and met Tom Dudley. He didn't have an office here. He's still, I believe he's still out of Oklahoma city at the time. Um, but he had a lot of due diligence projects and that's where I, I, I learned a lot of due diligence work working for Tom with uh, pioneer uh, acquisition of, I believe it was Mesa and then um, a couple others. And then uh, so I went to work for EOG in 2004 four and immediately was um, buying leases in the Barnett and then we're, was at EOG until 2009 almost 10 and then transferred out to work the Haynesville and that's where Brent and I got together and uh, uh, we've just been we've been good business uh, we've done really good business together we've been even better friends and it's been uh, it's really been it's really been a lot of fun and, and then when I came back here and went to work for Marathon, um, Brent and I got back together and um, did a really fun project while I was at Marathon together. So we, uh, you know, how careers go. You just, you know, you it's all about connections and communication, and you just, you know, you you wind up working for and with people that you know and trust, and that's. That's really how Brent and I have uh, has stayed together because we're 
first of all, we're really good friends. We care about uh, what we do and who we work for and the product that we that we uh, uh, that we put out. And uh, and it's it's I think that's how it uh, uh, how it needs to be. And that's how you stay in this business this long. Aging myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, I remember the joke whenever we uh, were doing that project. Uh, Permian Joe was like, "Oh, the band's back. We got the band back together." <laughs> I, I, I think uh, I think that was the the uh, uh, the initial sentence in the email I sent you. You ready to put the band back together? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I believe I owe you a T-shirt or something to that right. uh, effect. Right. I dropped the ball on that. Yeah, but um, <laughs> no, it, it was a good one. And, and to Williams' point, you know, if, if you're in this business long enough, or any business really, where you you know, you have a, a client and a service provider relationship. The relationship is important and that trust that's formed over, you know, doing these types of jobs is important. Yep. Um, your communication is so much more efficient. You can have blunt and to the point conversations. Um, and, and you can really work through challenging things. That's kind of the cool thing about what we do. There's no two projects are the same. So there's always collaboration and conversation and kind of just you're, you're kicking around ideas and kicking around strategy. Um, you know, if you're working for a different company, you're walking through process and protocols for, uh, you know, your client. And so that communication itself is huge. And it's been a big deal for, for us to, to be successful in the jobs that we've done together. That's what makes it fun too. You know, you, you're working with someone that you enjoy spending time with and working with, and if you can be successful together, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic. I'm glad that we got to get the band back together for this podcast. Uh, <laughs> we've got a fun topic today with how to manage leasing uh, a leasing project. And we really want to go through the ins and outs of both the broker side from Brent, but the in-house landman side from William. Right. So i uh, just going to toss some questions back and forth to you guys. I would love to have you guys just share your sides of the story. So I want to start really just talking about the value of a qualified broker. And I don't want Brent to toot his own horn too much. So I'm going to start with William. What is the value of a qualified broker and what value can they bring to a leasing project? Well, the, the real value in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a qualified broker is that they're going, to, they're going to have qualified people and they're always going to be training people and they're going to have a, have a training program where they put, you know, the, the, the new landmen with experienced landmen and, as an in-house landman, you know you're going to pay for some of that, but but that's how that's how you keep these businesses running. Um, I've always it, one of the first things I learned when I went to EOG um, and started running. I guess in the Barnett, we were running. It wasn't a Dudley. Uh, we did Dudley did work for us there, but the group that I was running was about a hundred guys, and um, David Fry, my land manager at the time, he said. You know, these guys' job is to keep you out of the ditch in the in our building, and and he said so. You know, you've got to you got to manage these guys to the point where they want to. Um, you know, they're going to, they're going to help you, and and so the value comes in these guys a, a brokerage knowing what's next. You know, learning how to how to anticipate what what's going to happen next, and um, sometimes sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're 
they're they're wrong, but at least at least you have them thinking about where you're going to go with leasing to drilling because that's different type of land work, you know, from building abstracts and things like that. So they're like a like a, a lead broker is is um, managing that project where if you say, you know, hey, I think we're fixing to bring some rigs in. Well, that's a different type of landman sometimes, especially these days when you're building abstracts and, you know, you don't want your lease, you don't want your lease hounds building abstracts. Um, you want them out there still leasing. So it helps that you have a group like Dudley that's large enough that has those specific folks that can perform those specific tasks. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, you really can't stress with any broker, the importance of the you know, that lead, you know, that, that project manager, it's, it's a huge job. It's a difficult job and even more so it's a difficult job to hire. It's, it's the most difficult position in our company to hire. And I think any broker say the same to have that person that, that has the confidence and the experience and the demeanor to handle the stress, but also think proactively to William's point, you know, you have to be thinking proactively. You can't live off a reaction to whatever's coming. So. The more you can plan, the more experience you have, the deeper bench you have, the better. It just allows you to, to be performing all the different functions of these types of projects at right. once. So, um, yeah, I mean, he nailed it. It's, it's a big deal. And, and the shops that have been around a long time, you know, have those people and they've cultivated those people through their training programs and through their process um, to, to identify and retain those quality landmen that can do all the things that you need done. It's a, it's a huge deal. Yeah. William, I'm sure that you've worked with several different land groups over the years, and you've probably had your share, fair share of experiences. What are some red flags for you that you start to notice whenever you're working with maybe a, a lead on a, on a project or just a broker in general that, hey, this is not going the right way? I think one of the, you, know, you, you can, you can kind of tell if they can't, one of my pet peeves has always been, if you're going to send an ownership report, and it's almost always it's in Excel format. Um, and you go to print it and it's not formatted. You have to, you have to format it. And I know that's petty, but it's a detail is that shows up. That's not getting done. And so when, when you hit print and then, and, and it, it's not formatted correctly, again, I know it's petty, but it's a symptom of something else down the line to me. And, mm. you know, when, when you send something from the field in house, it has to be right because there are other brokers out there and there you have competition and you have, uh, you know, you might be working for a broker might be working for a certain landman, but there's other brokerage houses inside that same land department in the, within that company that are working for other landmen too. And so, you know, you've got to be, you got to be diligent. And, you know, and these days you almost, always have to have a GIS function to your brokerage, um, which is an added cost. Um, and, and I am fully willing to pay for it because I normally can get better service and better maps out of my broker than I can from a GIS department who's, who's pulled largely by the um, geology department. You know, they're making maps for those, for those folks all day, every day. And we try to squeeze some in every once in a while. So having a GIS function 
with your broker is a, is really a big deal these days to me. Yeah, I can think through <clears throat> got all of the jobs we've done over the years with you in particular and, and many other clients is they're relying on a leasing project. They're relying on our mapping product because it's current yeah. uh, more so than, than they do their in-house product because, you know, leases are being generated. You know, leases only get mapped once they show up to your shop, but you know, on the broker side, they're doing the title. They know the ownership complexities They're If they're properly using some sort of system or database, they're going to be able to show you where your commitments are associate how many dollars are tied to those commitments um, and uh, show you where your leases were bought last week, as opposed yeah. to, you know, what leases you have, sure. you know, four weeks from then, once it's, it's been processed in house. So that's been a big deal. <laughs> and I think staying on top of that GIS component is a big deal from a technology standpoint on the broker side. I mean, I can think about how our product is and use of that stuff has evolved over the years. You know, I want to say, in the late 2000s, we developed our own GIS, you know, product. You know, the Calms Map Exploder, yeah. I think, is, was the joke. I think I was the guinea and, pig uh, for that, wasn't I? You were very much the guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't tell you that at the time. A few times it worked, it, it was awesome. Up. Yeah, when it worked, it was great. Uh, <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, we were trying to push technology. And we knew that there was a need for this live environment where you could pull data and information directly from your desktop in a, in a, in a web environment, in a GIS, you know, map kind of layout. And, uh, you know, we figured it out and it was tied to our database and it worked when it worked. But, uh, by the time we got the bugs worked out of it over the course of eight or 10 months, you know, technology almost passed us up. And, uh, you know, now we can host these things through Esri's, you know, Oracle online platform. And it does almost the exact same thing that we had spent years to program and to develop. Uh, but, uh, so, I mean, if you're not using those things, I'd say that's a red flag. If you're not able to host a map online, um, and you're not using a database that, that just tells you you're, you know, you're running off a spreadsheet and you're kind of winging it to, to William's point, you're, you know, you're, you're sending field reports and there's not that polish. You haven't refined your process and your product because you're, you're reacting to the job instead of knowing how you're going to run the job when and you get into it. The world is, the world has changed so much. Um, um, still, still on this, on this topic, I think the world has changed so much that when I first got in the business, you know, a big, a big lease play that a broker would go out and check, like what I would get, you know, for instance, in the, in, uh, the Permian, you know, would be maybe half a dozen sections because we're drilling vertical wells. And, uh, and now, you know, you're asking a broker to check an entire County, if not if not exactly half of it. So, you know, let's say it's, you, you know, like it at a large company, they're not going to, they're not even going to start thinking about their acreage position until they have 50, 60,000 acres. And so for a broker to be able to map that, let you know daily how, you know, what your commitments are and they can, you can print a map that they've made that has, the percentages of each section, you know, that's that that you have to date, what's committed, and it and it it just it adds. It's a significant value add, right? And so today, the way that I look at a broker um, is they're an extension of our land department. 
they may not always know, like everybody in the courthouse and doing this work may not always know who they're working for, but I view them as an extension to our land department. And, um, you know, and I know, I know Brent feels that way. And so do, so did Bryce and Jason, um, who I've worked with as well. So it's, it's really, it's really important that, that they feel a part of, of everything that's going on inside, you know, our company, although they have many clients, but, um, I, I think it's important for them to feel that way. I think that's a good thing to talk about, William. And it's, it's the, um, can you maybe share some of the, some of the information that's important to share with your project manager, uh, from a company's perspective, you know, again, kind of on the theme of being able to think proactively and, and help make decisions and help kind of, um, answer some of the questions from the field without having to bother you as an in-house guy, you know, what, what are some of those things that are important to be able to communicate with your team in the field? from a client to, to PM perspective for the, the project manager for, to, yeah. um, well, if I, if I understand what you're saying, so I think, I think the project manager should, he and I should have a, a, a good enough relationship where you can kind of anticipate the next move. Right. And, not necessarily spend a lot of money on that next move, but at least be thinking about it and be prepared when it comes. And it might be two or three things, um, but it takes a little while for, you know, if, if this happens. And, and a lot of times what I'll do is say, I'll come out of a meeting and immediately call the project manager and say, hey, this is what we talked about this week. And so we need to be thinking yeah. about this might happen. And if it does, how are we going to pivot? You know, who are you going to use to do that? Because this is a next level deal. It might be, it might be, hey, we're looking at, at, at making a, a small purchase of an operator. It's a different, different uh, client. It's a different uh, uh, set of guys, due diligence guys. And it may, you may have to pull them from somewhere else. So it helps you manage your business. If I can keep you thinking about something that's two or three steps ahead that may or may not happen but it's a conversation that that helps that when the man our management says okay let's pull the trigger on this you know we've already thought about it you know we're we're yeah we've already we're already out of the batter's box yeah, yeah i mean that's i've always thought that's been one of the positive things you know that that really helps with success we know what your plans are you looking to bolt on acres through an right. acquisition okay well you know, how much do I know about that area? What can I be doing ahead of time just to get ahead of things? Um, that's all huge. You know, where a rig might be going, yeah. what you guys are seeing, you know, in those meetings. I remember that that was, has always been huge to have those conversations right after your internal land meetings. <laughs> you know, things are fresh. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's going on. We could be informed and we could be thinking about resources, you know, who we have, where we might need to add people, or frankly, where we might need to take people off right. and you know it allows me to to, to hydrate the crew or hide yeah hydrate the crew right. um and and know listen i gotta find work for these three guys so you know all that stuff is huge i, I think you nailed it on on the kind of the communication front i think that such a big part of project management is organization 
And even just to your testament of attention to detail, William, with the spreadsheet and having it formatted properly, there's so many moving parts of a project at any given time that you've got to be able to recall information at will. What are some of the things that you look for in the organization of the deliverables, of the information that's gathered, of requests from the client side, from the in-house landman side, that's important to you? You mentioned the spreadsheets. What other stuff are you looking for in the organization? We need to know one thing that's, that's really, really important because now, now that the, the world has changed and we're spending so much, so much money on, on land, it never used to be this way. Now it's a, you know, these resource plays, they're, they're a land play, then they're an engineering play, then they're a geology play. The, the script has been flipped in the last 20 years. And so it's, it's really important for, for me in-house that, um, that I can walk into a meeting and I have exactly the number of acres that we've leased the number of acres committed, which is important so that we can plan what kind of money we, we need to have available and, and least committed and how much, how much money we spent to date. And so what, what's really good about what, uh, what Dudley has as a, as a product that I can log into every day, the, the calm system. And I, you know, I walk in in the morning, I kept it up, all day long because you never know when you're going to go into a meeting and you, and it's, it's updated on the fly sometimes. And I can, I can print that out or I can grab my laptop and I can go into any meeting at any time and I can have real answers instead of for, for my management, instead of saying, well, you know, I have to call, I have to get that to you and, you know, probably be tomorrow because they're out doing stuff. You know, I have those answers and, and that's and that's huge. And that goes back to my first point where, you know, your broker is there to keep you out of the ditch. And when you can walk into a meeting at any time of the day unannounced and somebody goes, hey, I need to know where you are. You know, I'm going to another meeting. I need I need these numbers and I print it out and go, here it is right here. And that's that's invaluable, actually, you know, because it makes it makes me look good and it also makes Dudley look good in the eyes of my uh like say my VP of land right yeah yeah I think one thing that that we tend to see on the projects that we do is that there's always a, a gap between you know different from in-house guy to in-house guys to what information they should really expect or know that they can get from the broker you know, we've done, had so many reps with William. He knows exactly what we can provide and he understands our process and he understands the tools that are out there to provide all this information. But oftentimes we find ourselves, you know, we're engaged in a project with a client and they don't know what they can ask for or what is customary or what we should be able to provide them. So we tend to, you know, we're saying, Hey, I feel like you might need this. Here's what we have available to you. This is the information that we're capturing by default. And, you know, there's eight or 10 things that's, you know, what's the burn rate on your project? What are your average costs per day? How many people do you have on the job? You know, what is, what is, what are we spending per quarter or, or per week with, with staff that, you know, all those things are super important for budgeting and planning, um, on the acquisition side, again, how many acres have we bought? Where are those acres? How much commitments do we have outstanding? And, and more importantly, how many dollars are we obligated to from a commitment standpoint? 
who are those people? You know, what did we buy in the last week? Um, you know, how many acres did we buy? How many leases were, was that? Um, <clears throat> what are our commitments aging? Our, we call it, it's an internal term, but you can report commitments and that's all great. But if a commitment stays on your committed list for six weeks, it's really not a commitment. You probably should pull that off. And if you're not able to monitor and stay on top of that, uh, and it just gets added to a list, then before you know it, your, your data is meaningless. Uh, so, you know, that's a big thing. I think as an in-house guy, we really just, if you got to encourage, you know, we encourage our clients that if you feel like you need something or there's something you're having to manually go through on a weekly basis to provide, you should probably ask for it because we'll capture it. And, and those are things that your broker should be doing. They should have the ability to do that. And if they, if they can't, well, then that's one of the red flags. You know, if you can't give on the fly good information that's accurate and, um, and manageable and lives and breathes in some sort of system, as opposed to some massive spreadsheet, you're just asking for trouble in, in the long run. William, what's the most successful way for you to communicate with that PM? Is it just picking up the phone after the meeting and giving a call? How do you like to correspond? Yeah, I, I'm kind of old school in that. And, you know, I, I'll pick up the phone. Um, I'm not, you, you can always, you can always email and, and text guys stuff, but um, picking up the phone and talking to, talking to your broker, it, you know, you get your message across, you know, it's across because, you know, it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation, but it also leads to, um, it also leads to, to other conversations sometimes and other questions. So it's, it's better to just pick up the phone, have the conversation. And then if you need to, um, email some details about what you just talked about, then do that. It's, it's a little hard to communicate a lot of, a lot of things with, with an email that, you know, gets lost in translation or you forget about it. So, um, it's, yeah. it's just, it's all about, you know, talking one-on-one -on -one and, and, you can't over communicate. Yeah, especially on the fly. You know, leasing projects are hot and heavy and the, the conditions always change, the directive always change, uh, the priorities always change. And so if you're relying on, you know, an email or a weekly email on your update, you're behind. Right. Um, if you can't, it, it, again, I go back to being proactive. If you're not informed as a manager on the broker side, you can't be proactive with keeping your guy out of the ditch, as old Fry used to yeah. say. Um, it's, uh, it, it's super important and, and it's a trust thing too. If you feel like you have to email everything to cover your butt, man, that's an unhealthy relationship. Um, and, and, you know, as a broker, if I know that, and I can trust that, you know, my client is, is informing me and I can be proactive and make decisions, uh, and I'm not going to get sailed down the river because we have that trust in that relationship. That's a huge deal. And it allows us to, to act on the fly and, and you know, zig when we need to, when we need to zig and zag when we need to zag. Yeah. Yeah. Brent, you had mentioned commitments earlier and I want to get some best practices from you on managing commitments on a leasing project. What are some of the things that come to mind? Man, it's the hardest thing because it's like the, if you ask somebody to define a commitment, you'd probably get three or four different answers. Um, and, and I think, you know, the thing that's challenging about commitments is it's, it's at what point in time do you actually commit something, you know? And the one thing that is constant about a leasing job, the second a company says, Hey, go lease, 
that's getting attention all the way up to the top. And, and, you know, there's pressure on the in-house guy to produce, there's pressure on, you know, his, his land manager to produce and show that we're getting acreage because he has to answer all the way up to the top most often. And so you, you have to fight that urge to show progress, um, as opposed to show progress with some accuracy and, and that's the challenge, right? You know, if you've got a greenfield leasing project where you're picking up the phone and calling off old leases, well, it's hard to, to say how many net acres you have committed, right? Because you haven't titled that you're just, you're trying to get ahead of things and you're trying to catch up with title as best you can. Um, for us, best practices, we, we try not to commit something until we can associate a dollar amount to it. It means ultimately acreage makes you feel good, but you gotta be accountable for the dollars that you're, you're exposing your client to. And so it's finding that balance. Um, communication is a big deal. Anytime we go into a new leasing project with a new client, we spend an exhausting amount of time talking about, okay, what are your, what's your situation in house? What are your standards for commitments? You know, how do you need to see it? Um, is it important just to see the acres or do you really need to see the dollars? And that helps us kind of make some decisions on when we hit go on a, on a given commitment. Um, and, and, you know, also they need to understand where we are in that process and our client needs to know so that they can answer to things on the meeting about, you know, okay, well, this commitment's there. How much, how much is that? Well, they need to know where we are in the process and how that works and, and how we got to that. Um, those are the best practices is if you can help it, don't commit something until you can associate dollars to it. And that equates to net acres. But if you have to jump the gun and really get aggressive with reporting commitments, everybody's got to be on the same page as to what that means. And, and they have to understand that that can change between when you say that's committed and when you actually in, in, that, in hand that lease because you verify the title. Yeah. Um, that's the, that's the biggest thing. Yeah. William, what, what is anything from your side that you want to add for that? Well, I think what, as Brent, as you were, as you were saying that, um, what was going through my mind was, um, it's important for the in-house landman to know what you're giving your broker and the instructions, the, not only the, not only the right instructions, but also, um, you know, the in-house landman needs to have an idea of, of the time frame that it takes for what you're given that, that, that broker. And, and you really don't, unless you've worked in the field, you don't have to be the best in the, you don't have to be the fastest and the most efficient in the courthouse. You, I think every landman needs to know how to go out and run records, um, and, and do things in the field, buying right away for a little bit of time and spending time doing the, doing those sorts of tasks that you're asking these guys to do. So you give them, um, you give your broker some, some work and it's been sitting on, on your desk for six weeks and you call them two days later and go, Hey, where is this? You know, and you know, the broker's going, man, I, I literally just got this. And this is, this is some really hard title right? This is really intense. And the in-house landman does, didn't have any idea of the time frame that, that you need to, that you need, right? So you have, uh, they're not managing their, the expectations of, of, 
you know, of their work, you know, in-house. So that's where a lot of um, projects can get a little disjointed with the, the in-house guy doesn't understand the real scope and the difficulty of what they're being, what they're asking their broker to do. They just, you know, they just see it go out and they see it come back and, and uh, uh, you know, it's, they don't see everything that goes into it. How many, how many man hours that these guys spent in a hotel room away from their family, you know, um, at working at night just to get this thing back to you because you let it sit on your desk for six weeks. They're going to get it to yeah. you. Right. <clears throat> William, I'll, I'll send you your 20 for saying that. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that, man. Um, I mean, I that's a big thing. 20? Managing a- <laughs> 20 and a cheeseburger. How about that? Yeah. Um, it's uh, managing expectations. It, yeah. You nailed it. I mean, that's the thing. And, and, you know, not everybody, not every field person understands the in-house land job and not every in-house land person understands the field component. But if you could communicate effectively and efficiently and, and all, from a broker's perspective, manage those expectations, you know, a, an in-house guy may have been working at Oklahoma asset for, for the last three years or the first three years or five years of his or her career. And all of a sudden they're out in the Permian Basin or in East Texas, they've got they've got a mental picture of how long something should take if they ask for it. Yeah. But just because it took that long in one state or one basin doesn't mean that translates to the next place you're working. So you have to be very, you have to manage expectations and you have to speak truthfully and honestly based on your experience about how long you feel like this is going to take and what to expect, you know, when running mineral title, um, you know, in, in a certain county and it can vary from county to county in a region. Um, and, and that's where that trust comes in again. You know, you have to trust that if, if your broker's telling you something, you need to be able to take it to the bank and go down the hall and say, Hey man, this is why this is taking longer. And you need to believe and trust that and not try to put expectations from another basin on, on your projects. That's, that's in a different part of the world. But it comes back to when, when I first started, um, as, as an independent, uh, one of the, uh, first brokers that I worked for, um, his, his kind of a motto, he's like, do you want it right? Or do you want it right now? That's two different answers. And, uh, and so, you know, and that's where man, the, the managing expectations comes from is in my, in my mind is working for him is, do you want it right? Or do you want it right now? And, uh, yeah. So, it can it can be tough on especially these young landmen that 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 come directly out of college in house and they never go out to the field. Um, it there's just it can it can happen you know it happens mostly in the, in that scenario once you get some some time under you and you've had a project or two um, you get you get better at it but there can be some real heartburn there. On both sides, you know, in-house, in-house, you got to fade some heat and, 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 you know, you might run through a couple brokers that, you know, the broker just goes, ah, you know, I don't have, you know, I don't have time. Well, that's translated as I'm not working for that guy again. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a, the, the right now in, in today's, you know, in today's time to William's point earlier, so much has changed. And as all these fields mature and it just gets more difficult 
you know, title gets more complex. Your work and interest gets more complex. You add a horizon and then it's just, it's a multiplier. Um, and we really run, what we really run into problems in today's world, especially in the Permian Basin is if you're having to rush. Um, and, and you just never feel like what you turn in is you're, you never feel comfortable with it. It's hard to feel comfortable in general because this stuff is so complicated all, at times. But if you're really having to rush through it, God, it's, it's brutal. And, and, and kind of to that point, I'm getting a little bit off topic, but you can rush, you know, there are ways to expedite things, but it comes at a cost, you know, uh, it's maybe a little more efficient to have one person doing something, but if you really got to have it, there's ways to put multiple people on it. You, you separate certain components of the work and you can put it together. Yeah. Um, you have to find that balance between, Hey, I'm in a pickle. I got to have something done quickly. Um, versus to William's point, let something sit on your desk a little too long. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh my God, I got to get this done. Um, and then you put everybody in a bad, bad position. William, you had mentioned you don't recommend just going straight in house without any field work as a landman. And for the people that are out there that are coming right out of college, straight into an in-house position, what are some things that they can be learning from their field team? If they're working with a qualified broker, what should they be paying attention to with their field team? The main thing is they, they will learn what it's like being out in the field. So when, when I was at EOG in, in, in the Barnett and EOG was growing, you know, we started that, um, started that office with 12 people that transferred over from, uh, from Midland. And in two years, we had 300 people and that, you know, including new land staff that, that all came out of college, mostly came out of college. So what, what would happen is their first day working for EOG was in the broker's office and they worked there for six months and did everything. They, they were just treated as a, as a, uh, um, uh, a broker, you know, as a, as a landman that the broker ran and, um, they had to be out there for six weeks, six months. And they didn't come in house until our broker said they're ready. And so what, what they were being trained to do is manage those expectations and see what comes from the workflow that comes from the main office to the, to the brokerage office and how it gets dispersed out into the field and they can learn to check records, do some right away, go lease some guys, um, go with some guys to lease and, and then go with some guys on some, on some problem areas where, you know, go handle some complaints on, you know, People, you know, complaining about, you know, trucks running over, you know, running into their into their pasture or something like that and and learn how to just learn how to deal with people. So, you know, it's it's really important for me because I had to do it the hard way, I think the hard way. But I think it's I think it's an invaluable lesson. And it, it again, it's only it's only, you know, three to six month time frame that can teach a young landman a lot about what it's like to be in the field. And you go meet some people too. Um, and this business is all about relationships, you know? And so I, yeah. I run into guys that have been on my crews all over the place that are now in-house landmen. And, um, you know, there's always, there's always fun stories about, you know, being out in the field and, you know, it's, it's been, uh, I, I think that, that that's probably the main, 
the main point is they just need to be out there, learn what it's like. Cause it's hard. These guys are away from their families for weeks at a time. They, they, you know, they cut out as early on Friday as practically possible. And then they're back Sunday night and ready to get after it on Monday. It's, it's hard. I think the biggest takeaway from that is, you know, once you go back in house, you, you understand what you're asking for, you know, and you understand kind of what goes into that, whether it's you're having to go to the field and, and get in the courthouse and do the work, or if, or if you're having to sit and plow through an online index for 10 hours a day to, to make sense of something, um, it's, it's, it always works better if you understand what it is you're truly, what it goes into what you're asking for. Um, it's a big deal. It's, it's what EOG did back in those days was fantastic. Some of the best landmen that I've worked with over the years have had that little bit of experience and it doesn't take much. Three to six months, you can gain a perspective of what goes into what you're asking for and what your, your counterparts on your brokers, brokerage team are doing. Um, it, you know, over the years we've done internship programs, other brokers do that. And I think that's huge as well. Just giving us a junior in college for three months with the support of our client to work on one of their jobs and to allow us to help kind of train them and educate them on what being a field landman is and, and what we can and can't do and, and what's deliverable and how a good shop should be organized and run is, is critical in their development as a, as a potential landman. Uh, so it's, it's huge. And the clients that we've had the longest, best working relationships with have supported that, you know, they'll, they'll encourage, you know, interns at, at the, the energy management programs to intern with Dudley for a summer in their sophomore or junior year. And, you know, they come to work with us, they work on that client's jobs. And then, you know, the next year they're interviewing for in-house internships and they call us all the time. Hey, how was this person to work with? You know, they've got a pre-interview with us and, and we can vouch for someone's work ethic or how they are with people. You know, you see the best and the worst of people in, in those situations. And, um, the clients that have supported that over the years have really had a lot of success and, and really brought in really qualified, good people that are great for the team and have a little bit of experience in the fields. It's a plus. Brent on the, on the flip side for the qualified broker, how do you ensure that the people that you work, that you have out working in the field and the people that you have in the PM position understand what it's like to be an in-house landman and the pressure that comes in that position. How do you train people? How do you get that understanding into their heads of what is really important, what matters to the in-house client? Yeah, that's, that's huge. And I think healthy, healthy conversation, healthy working relationships are key to a, a manager's development and that communication, regular meetings, standardized protocols for when you meet, how you communicate with your team, your field team are huge in that, in that aspect. If as a PM, if I understand and know my client's perspective and what he's having to go through and what his needs are, it can make it, it makes it much easier for me to communicate that to my team. And the more informed we all are and the sense of urgency that we can all act with, you know, the, the more urgency we can all act with and understanding, you know, what his perspective is better. Um, it's, it's a lot of times, unfortunately that comes with time, you know, it's, you got to get an opportunity as a crew chief to be able to work under a good project manager that can help inform you and educate you. And then as a good project manager, you need to be able to work with a number of different in-house landmen and a number of different scenarios and, and projects 
to be able to do that. Um, you know, I'd say the longer you do this and the longer you work for a given shop, um, the better you can get at those things. You know, the more informed you can become, the different types of jobs that you can take little bits and pieces from. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we do, and I know other shops do this as well, is, you know, we have regular best practices, you know, meetings where we're taking our, our, our better landmen, our better crew chiefs, our project managers from all over the company. And we're talking about, Hey, I just did this type of job. This is something new and different that we did. This is how we handle this situation. And you can get better based off of other people's experience. And so within the organization, if you're being broke, being very deliberate about having those learning sessions amongst yourselves to try to identify the best practices, if you're doing those things, that's just going to make everyone better, make you more efficient. And help you identify, frankly, the, the field landmen who want to get better, who want to learn, who want to be a part of your team. Um, that's e as equally as important as, you know, anything. Um, if you can have those people buy in and be a part of the group and want to help, man, you know, your retention stays. You don't, you're not dealing with a bunch of people just chasing the day rate. You're dealing with people that want to be a part of your organization and, and value the exposure that they get and the opportunities they get to learn more about you know, what William's job is and what makes his job tick and his organization tick. I think the, I think the ultimate conf confirmation for a broker is to, that they're doing things right and they're training people correctly is to bring somebody in that's young, keep them for a few years, show them the ropes and they get poached by, by one of your clients, which, you know, Brent might, I don't think you'll disagree with it, but you hate losing good people. But yeah. when you, when you lose a good person to a client or somebody that's not a client and you know, you still have that relationship and it's maybe a new relationship with a new company, that's new business, yep. right? Because yeah. you're going to be his first call when he gets a project. Yeah. Right. If you weren't an a-hole, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> if you weren't an a-hole, <laughs> but I, but I think it's, yeah. I think it's a, a, I think it's a compliment to, to your brokerage service. If you have a guy that gets poached because yeah. you're doing things right. Yeah. And not everybody yeah. is, not everybody can be in house and not everybody can be in the field their whole career. There's a, there, there's some guys who really need to be in the field. Um, yeah. And so it's I, I, I think that uh, it might sting a little bit, but ultimately, I think it's a compliment that people think enough of the way that you train people to hire your guys or poach your guys and bring them in house. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it is once you, you know, once you go home and cry <laughs> for a few hours and. And, and can ponder upon how in the hell am I going to survive this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you kind of you get over it and you're happy. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That, that team is so that part of your team is so critical and having people that have the right mindset that are ready to, to continue learning always that pay attention to details that don't assume and always ask questions. Those are, those are huge, but it's not just about the team that you have. It's also about how you structure them. Right. What are the keys to structuring your team for a leasing project from, from both of your sides? How do you set things up to, for success for that team? Yeah, it, it's a, uh, that's always, 
you know, kind of going back to the point we made at the beginning of this, each project is a little different, you know, and you can't take a rigid mentality into a leasing project. Uh, you have to understand client circumstances or what the timing is, um, is, is this going to be a stealth project, which we could go down a whole wormhole about stealth. William is probably one of the best in the business at that. Uh, he's, he's got proof of how to run a stealth project, but you know, you got to look at your circumstances. Is this a bigger job? Is this, or is it six sections? Um, generally what you want to see here, you know, a good PM that can be the conduit between the field team and your, and your client. Um, you want to have people designated to lead your buyers. You need someone setting up best practices, making sure that your leases are drafted properly, that, you know, you're, you're capturing all your contact notes that you're categorizing people properly, you know, and, and he's helping negotiate, you know, the leases to a certain extent with his buyers. Um, this is the person, you know, that, that acquisitions kind of crew chief is he's reviewing addendums before it goes to the client. He's doing some of that work and trying to, to get that thing drilled down to what's critical for the client to review, to approve an addendum. Um, and that makes that process so much more efficient and makes your turnaround time better. If you've got somebody that can vet those things, uh, before it goes to, to William's desk, the other side is the, you know, the title side of it's a huge deal. Um, you need someone QCing product. You need someone answering title questions and uh, from the field title team. Um, you need that quality control. And the third component that, that really is, it's, it's kind of unsung. It's an unsung hero of a good quality managed project is, uh, is your data team. You know, you gotta have somebody that's, that's taking that, the work that the buyers are doing, the work that the title team is doing and making sure that it gets put into your system, whether you're working on a spreadsheet or a database, it's, if it's, it's crap in crap out, <laughs> we've all heard that saying. But if you've got good product, good information that goes in, that trickles down to the, all the way, you know, to the entirety of your project. If, if, um, so, you know, we look at it in, in kind of three individual teams, data, title, and, and acquisitions. All those people feed up to a good project manager that can help tell the story and, and be the conduit between your client landman and the field team. Uh, in our minds, that, that always works the best. Uh, any job over you know, 10 people, any leasing projects over 10 or 12 people, we find that's the, the best way to work. Well, that's, that's really fascinating. I think that's a really great structure, Brent. And I appreciate you breaking that down. Guys, this has been a fascinating conversation uh, about leasing projects. And honestly, I feel like we could keep it going even further, but maybe that oh, just yeah. means we need to bring you back, William. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, get the band back together yeah, again. We'll have like our third reunion tour. We, yeah. we really appreciate your time, William. Thank you for sharing uh, your side of things, for your appreciation of the brokerage side as well. Uh, it's really cool to see how long you've, you've been doing this and how successfully you're doing it in so many different areas. So um, really appreciate your time. How can listeners get in touch with you? You're on LinkedIn, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the easiest, easiest way at, at LinkedIn and, and uh, all my contact information is there. Okay. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes. That or just that or run around landman circle and say, have you seen the silver Fox? <laughs> I'm looking for the silver Fox. Oh, William. Yeah. yeah he's over there. Right. Awesome. Thank you, yeah. Fricker. I appreciate you, man. Yeah. Anytime, Brent. Thank you. And, uh, and I really appreciate you guys uh, thinking of me and this, this was a blast. I'd love to do it again. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Always fun. Guys. Right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the land department. Check out our website in the show notes or visit Dudley land.com to learn more about us.